Good evening and welcome to this Latrobe Asia webinar, Australia-China Relations, a new low point. I am Beck Strouding, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. I would also like to pay my respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who are watching this webinar. Part of our role at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. There is no doubt that 2020 has been a rocky year for relations between Australia and China. Tensions have flared over a range of issues, including Australia's calls for a coronavirus inquiry, Beijing's trade strikes against key industries and challenges to press freedom. The political rhetoric has also hardened. In Chinese media, Australia is cast as a lackey of the United States, while in Australia, concerns about foreign interference, human rights abuses, and what China's rising power means for regional security is increasingly shaping the narrative. So, are Australia-China relations where they need to be? Has the political decline deeply affected trade relations between Australia and China? And how does Australia deal with an increasingly assertive regime in Beijing? Is the Morrison government's adoption of a sovereign first approach helpful or is it likely to do more harm than good? I am delighted to be joined by our expert panel tonight to discuss these events. First, I would like to welcome Richard McGregor. Richard is a senior fellow at Lowy Institute in Sydney and is an award-winning journalist and author with extensive experience covering China and East Asia. Welcome, Richard. Our next guest is Diane Hu. Diane is the Deputy Director of the Australian Studies Centre at the Beijing Foreign Studies University. She is also an Associate at the Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Diane. Our third panellist is Michael Smith. Mike is the China correspondent at the Australian Financial Review and has extensive experience as a journalist in China and reporting on issues relating to Australia and China relations. It's great to have you here, Mike. And finally, I'd like to welcome Latrobe's own Gerald Roach. Gerald is a senior research fellow in politics in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at Latrobe University. And Gerald is a well-renowned expert in the anthropology of China. So thank you also, Gerald, for being here tonight. Thanks, now, there will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the second half of tonight's event, for which we will be using the Q&A function. You should be able to see that at the bottom of your screen. Uh, but let's get straight into it. We have a lot to cover tonight. So I'm going to start with you, Richard, uh, to give us a broad overview of some of the, the issues that I briefly mentioned. Uh, from your perspective, what are the key issues uh, in uh, the Australia-China relationship in 2020? Well, you know, uh, 
When trying to talk about Australia-China relations, there's obviously a big issue. That's the sort of geopolitical shift that's taking place between our eyes. In fact, in front of our eyes, that has been for some time now. The relative decline of Pax Americana, the rise of Pax Sinica, or at least China, uh, in some respects now, uh, that would be destabilizing by itself, um, uh, leaving aside the fact that uh, China and the US are rivals with each other and, of course, have deeply dif uh, different governing systems, political systems. So that's a source of antagonism of itself. And Australia is stuck in the middle of that, or if you like, leaning to one side, as Chairman Mao used to say, uh, in favour of the United States, uh, and thus facing a whole series of difficult choices over security, over trade, et cetera, et cetera. But on top of that, I think it's, you know, uh, I moved back uh, to Australia about two years ago, and at one stage I started to compile a list of all the small aggravations, which all of themselves contain, you know, the a, a different part of the big aggravation. So if you look at the list, it's quite extraordinary. You know, it's Huawei, uh, South China Sea, maybe the East China Sea as well, uh, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, uh, Crown Casino. Uh, you might remember those stories. You might also remember at the start of this year or late last year, spying allegations about Chinese spies, uh, foreign interference. And of course, the foreign interference legislation is a slow burn in a way because first that had to be debated and passed. And now we're getting to the actual prosecution of it, uh, which means um, allegedly uh, uh, allegations about uh, people in Australia interfering on behalf of China in this case. We've got the trade coercion, which you mentioned before. Uh, universities, you're in the middle of that. Controversy about the universities, overly reliant on Chinese students. Issues of free speech on campus. Uh, hacking. Um, we even had a sort of dispute between um, two sports people, which I think cut through to the general populace. Um, Mac Horton and Sun Yang. Um, and I'm sure I've left a few off. Now, that on top of that, as you mentioned at the start, there's COVID. Um, as somebody described it to me, I think it was quite a nice uh, Im image. You know, the Australia-China relations, it was a bit like looking um, in slow motion at a landslide. You know, you're looking at a mountain, you see a little bit of rock fall off here, a little bit of sand off there, a little bit more. And then we got Australia's call for uh, an independent um, uh, inquiry into COVID-19. Um, I might say I think that was very poorly handled by Australia, but we can come back to that about Australian policy. And that's when it all just collapsed. And we're still in that phase at the moment, uh, intensifying trade coercion, uh, a lot of you know megaphone bickering on either side. And, of course, we have no way to talk to each other other than through the megaphone at the moment. We don't really have kind of back channels that, you know, the Japanese and, and, and others have. So we've got, you know, the geopolitical shift and the multiple all sorts of really difficult issues which are part of that, which are just driving the narrative uh, in a downwards direction. So I think the title of this program today is about a new low. Well, every week we get a new low. Michael uh, Smith writing for the Australian Financial Review probably gets sick of writing a new low and has to find a new way of describing it, like a fresh low or something like that. Um, so that's, you know, I've given a pretty gloomy, gloomy outlook, but we're at a pretty gloomy spot. 
I think you've really set us up for the discussion uh, tonight because you've identified a, a range of uh, sticky issues there. Uh, and you mentioned the geopolitics, you mentioned the, the US-China rivalry, and one of Australia's real challenges is how to manage these two great powers that are really incredibly important to Australia's future. Uh, of course, there was uh, an election recently. I don't know whether you saw it <laughs> in the United States. Uh, and we have a new president-elect, uh, it appears. Uh, so you've, you've written uh, a lot extensively, including a book on the CCP leadership uh, and, and the party. How do you think uh, they're likely to view a new president in the White House. And is this likely to change Australia's relations with China or Australia's uh, regional security outlook? Well, the short answer is we don't know. Um, of course, the Chinese, like everybody else, are waiting for there, there to be a president-elect. I don't think China has congratulated Mr Biden yet, but I don't think there's any particular deep meaning in that. I think they're, <clears throat> they're just waiting to see what happens. You know, the US and China factor, um, I think it's, you know, the US, we've had Pax Americana since 1945, but the truth is these days, if you look at the US and China, the stable country amongst them is China. Uh, we know about the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, they're not going away, particularly under Xi Jinping. Uh, we know what they want, they want to be a regionally dominant country. Uh, uh, we know about the South China Sea claims. We know about Taiwan. All that is set, and basically China is just, you know, relentlessly, remorselessly moving down the track towards those objectives. And I would argue has been doing so for a long time, you know, prior to Xi Jinping. The US, by contrast, is much less predictable, much less stable. And I think uh, Trump uh, uh, is, is a big factor in that. He kind of, for all his craziness, articulated, I think, you know, that many people, what many people thought and wouldn't articulate and wouldn't say, uh, you know, that US foreign policy was kind of broke, um, uh, it, particularly in the Middle East and the like. It was overstretched. Um, and when he started to take attack alliances in 2016, the election campaign, uh, what are we doing in Japan? What are we doing in South Korea? Why are we spending all this money? Uh, you know, in short, why can't Asia be run by Asians? Well, it's kind of a good question. And I don't think anybody was able to articulate, um, you know, an ongoing rationale which convinced America people, American people that things should go on as they are because clearly they're not. Now, you know, why shouldn't Asia be run by Asians? Of course, the problem with that is that Asia would be run by China. And many countries in Asia still want the US to be there as a balancer uh, against China, if nothing else. And of course, Australia uh, is, is a big part of that. Now, what happens um, in a Biden presidency? Hard to know. Uh, Biden's first year will be very domestically focused, I think. You know, he's got to clean up COVID. He's got to clean up the economy. Secondly, Biden is an Atlanticist. His, his, his personal history is involved in Europe, uh, not in Asia and the like. And then, of course, he has to appoint his team. Biden is 78. Um, uh, uh, he's getting old. There's, you know, there's, there's whatever Trump says. I'm not saying he's senile, but he's not as sharp as he was. So it's going to be a very important to see who he puts in as Secretary of State, National Security Advisor into the State Department and the Pentagon, because I think they will have a really big influence on policy uh, and and uh, have a big say in it. Just finally, um, I think it's certainly true that there's a bipartisan agreement in Washington 
uh, in an otherwise divided city that policy on China has to change. But I also think it's true that the US has really let to, let, uh, yet to sort of settle uh, on a new policy. And I'll just say one thing finally, even though I always, already said that, Australian policy, I would describe that in two, uh, we're looking for internal resilience and strength uh, and external options and friends. Um, and I think that's the right policy. Uh, I'm not sure our execution of it uh, has always been as good as it should be, but I'll finish there so we can hear from the others. Yeah, thank you. I think we'll come back to, uh, as I said, some of those issues, particularly around the South China Sea, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Uh, but I would like to bring Diane into the conversation here uh, and get your perspective on what the key issues uh, in the Australia-China relationship have been in 2020. In your view, why has it been rocky this year? Thank you, Vic. Uh, uh, so I, I'd just be trying to uh, talk about the key issues in bilateral relations in 2020 as a, a Chinese scholar who has been stuck in Australia <laughs> almost a whole year. <laughs> but luckily, with access to uh, to information and news in both languages from, from both countries. So uh, I would definitely agree with everyone that this the, the general trend is worsening and which has been happening since 2017. And a new low is a it's a very interesting way to put it. And maybe we're going to see new low next year. So <laughs> Richard is giving a very gloomy picture. And I think I would just echo with him on that. Uh, Richard has pretty much listed all the issues. And I would just uh, sort of concur with him on many of uh, the most important ones, like the geopolitics and military and strategic issues, of course, are always there and at the backdrop. And Prominently, I would say, like Australia's uh, participation in the military exercises, more active involvement in all the multilateral or regional arrangements to contain China. That's very much a, a very important part of that picture. And definitely uh, the most prominent one is, is Australia leading the call for an independent inquiry into the origin of COVID. And I would like to add that before that, in fact, well, Australia was the first country to close its border, well, um, technically to close uh, its border to uh, any traveller who, uh, uh, who has been staying in China for the past 14 days on February the 1st. Uh, I think the hurt feeling started even back then. And then, of course, um, another part of it we have seen, especially lately, you see really about the trade disputes and also how Australia has been commented on that. And then it's the latest uh, episodes of foreign interference, including or arguably started with a raid on the four Chinese journalists based in Sydney, and also how Australia responded to issues like Hong Kong and the other things. And I want just to add one more thing that is really important. He said, I think the Chinese side, at least, is very conscious of the domestic debate right now in Australia about, uh, no matter how you call it, diversifying or deleveraging or decoupling from China economically, the Chinese side is very conscious of that. And um, in fact, the funny part about it is that this year, throughout this year, we have seen some signals from the Chinese side, which... Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> didn't end up anywhere. And this is one little thing, I think, um, which may not be covered later on, but I would like to bring it. 
because I think it's going to have serious implications for the future. It's a shifting sentiment uh, in public opinion in the both in, in both countries. So uh, I think we're all very familiar with the Lowy uh, with the Lowy poll. I think this year's poll result is very very clear on that. And what we did back in China is that in June this year, we did our uh, first poll on Australia and China-Australia relations as well. And what we have seen, for example, is also this um, sort of concern uh, among the Chinese with Australia. And a very good example is we asked them about how would they comment on Australia's um, leading the call for an independent inquiry into the origin of COVID. And we have more than 80% of the respondents, which is 2,105, uh, from first tier and second tier cities in China. And they thought it was either very big, uh, very, very big buyers or fairly big buyers. And also the funny part about it is that we asked them to identify uh, for China, what is Australia? Is Australia more of an economic partner or others? So about two thirds of them would say Australia is more of an economic partner. However, we do have about the, the other one third, which would say that for China, Australia is more for political or ideological threat or even military threat. So when looking at the future, I mean, um, a lot of them would say, about half of them would say that the biggest obstacle to bilateral relations would be the fact of the US. And then again, one third of them would say, well, ideological differences would be the biggest obstacle for the future. And about 13.7% would say domestic politics also has a role. So that's a public opinion part I would like to add. That's really interesting, fascinating kind of results there. And you mentioned right at the end that uh, one of the biggest challenges is, uh, is the United States. So I'll ask you the same question that I asked Richard about um, how the leadership in China is likely to view, uh, well, to view the old president uh, and to view the president-elect. Uh, are we likely to see more or less strategic competition in Asia between the US and China, and what is this likely to mean for China's relationships with regional states, uh, which obviously includes Australia? Uh, the interesting thing is um, perhaps just across the world that Australia and China see eye to eye on this <laughs> when it comes to the president-elect and, and the incumbent, of course. Um, so I'd just be offering, I mean, the opinions of a of both of them, and perhaps particularly on um, the president-elect from a scholarly perspective. And I'd like to uh, share you something interesting, and some of you may, may just know about it, is that before the election, most of the IR scholars in China had their money on Biden. So <laughs> pretty, much, pretty much like four years ago, when most of them had their money on Hillary, and I lost four years ago. So <laughs> I really felt bad about that. <laughs> but the funny part about it, I mean, I mean, of, of course, most of them would base their, uh, would base their prediction on the results of Poe and there's, there, were, there were still ones who were uncertain. But I just want to talk about one thing which is really in interesting is uh, Professor Tang Shiping with Fudan University 
who has been who has been doing modeling for for a very long time, sort of to track elections across the world. And the funny part about it is because I was checking the result today, is that um, they did an agent-based modeling in six states: uh, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, West Virginia, Missouri, and they got it all right. So I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that they could do that. But I think that partly showed um, this, this concentration or this huge interest uh, among the Chinese and among the Chinese scholars uh, in America, the future of America and also the future of China-US uh, relations. And I was reading uh, the past few days on how uh, Biden has been portrayed on Australian media. And I want to say I find it really interesting that uh, the Aussie media and Chinese media pretty much share the views and the stories and the anecdotes of Biden. <laughs> That's really, really funny part. But I think the keywords are pretty much the same, like um, with Biden, we see more predictability. Uh, whereas in China, I think another key term is really the term rational. Is that compared with Trump, that Biden will be more uh, rational, <laughs> as the Chinese would say. And um, I think um, Richard was talking about the reset. And I think some of them are, I mean, there have been scholars uh, certain voices talking about this reset of China-Australia, sorry, about China-US relations and about how the president-elect would take a more conventional approach. But I, I just want to add, and Richard somehow touched upon that too, is that uh, this time the caution is always there, that, that China is very cautious of the fact that the fundamentals are different. So there has been this fundamental shift. There has been this bipartisan agreement in terms of how to deal with China and also public opinion is also, uh, would also support that. So uh, I think this is, uh, many people are trying to uh, predict, uh, for example, think that Biden perhaps would be tougher on human rights and things like that, may, may, may hold a little bit on train way for that. But also, I mean, pretty much like Australia, but less so than Australia, is that expecting common ground or cooperation in issues like climate change. Uh, unfortunately, climate change is not a big issue in China, but definitely for other things like peace and international cooperation, regional, I think that will be a, a, a very, very uh, important area to see if the two countries sort of can sit down and talk to each other and see more cooperation there. So I think I think the general uh, prediction is that there will be less overt, overtly hostile competition between the two countries. But what would that tell about Australia or China-Australia relations? I think it's it's tricky because on the one hand, I mean, if it's less overly hostile, then it would definitely ease off the pressure on Australia. But there's another part of it that is that Biden has been a huge advocate of this in, uh, this this uh, this importance of allies working together against China. So if that is the case, I think it's pretty much taking shape right now, that that would definitely result in heightened hostility and sort of 
I mean, we're almost seeing a peer pressure among many countries in the world right now in terms of their policies on several aspects. So I think it would possibly push China further on defense mode. So what, what that would happen for the future, what implications is, is, really, is really, I mean, something for us to see. And just lastly, I'd like to say that the U.S., and Richard was talking about it too, that the U.S. is always the backdrop, the most important context of China-Australia relations. But I think, well, it is one of the main factors or arguably the main factors for Australia to deal with China, but not the other way around. So I don't know how China-U.S. Uh, relations are going to develop, but I think really we are seeing more and more um, issues um, specific to Australia, to Australia's relations to China. In other words, Australia does have its own problems and concerns and anxieties that America not necessarily share. And really, uh, Australia is more enmeshed with China in many other ways, like investment, like migration, and the huge number of students and tourists. So, and there's also this one little thing about, about trade, about conflicting interests between countries, especially when it comes to trade. I mean, when the trade war between China and America happened, many of the Australian businessmen I know, I mean, what they were trying to talk about is that what can Australia get out of it? So that pretty much shows a conflict. I think I would just stop there. Thank you. And we can come back to some of those issues uh, later on as well, because there's a lot to unpack there with the alliance and with trade relations as well. But uh, I might turn to Mike. It's not that long ago since uh, you became the news yourself uh, by hastily leaving China, um, facing some uh, pressure around reporting. So I wanted to get uh, your perspective on just what it's like being a journalist in China at the moment, uh, the challenges that the press face in reporting on issues, um, look, not just affecting Australia-China relations, but just reporting more generally on politics in China. Yeah, I mean, I think just to put my situation in perspective, I, I never had to leave China because of anything I wrote or a particular story uh, I was investigating. It was very much a political situation. I think Bill Bertels and I got caught in caught up in a diplomatic spat between Australia and China, and unfortunately, we, we had to leave because of that. So it wasn't sort of the Chinese government taking issue with, with some great story I, I broke. Unfortunately, that, that didn't happen. But, um, I mean, as Richard knows, reporting in China, when, when you're in China, it's incredibly rewarding as a journalist. It's, it's, you know, one of the most exciting countries in the world. It's one of the biggest stories in the world. It's a sort of huge, diverse country. I mean, there's so, you know, there's so much to sort of see uh, and report on, but it's also incredibly challenging place to, to report uh, from as well. And we can maybe get back into that later. But for journalists, I think covering, you know, the Australia-China, uh, the, the current tensions, look, it's a very difficult story to cover. It's a very hard story, as I'm finding, to cover here when you're not when you're not in China and I guess one example last week sort of it was Monday afternoon and we started getting texts from from contacts saying there's this list of uh, Australian goods that are going to be banned from next Friday and we we're getting these sort of odd 
text that was circulating amongst distributors in China saying sugar and coal and timber and all these other products were going to be banned, but we didn't really know where it came from. We didn't know if it was, um, you know, if it was even real or not. And, and like with anything, when you're reporting on China, I mean, it's not like the government sort of puts out a press release or you can ring someone up in the foreign ministry and confirm it. So it's um, it's sort of a bit of reading the tea leaves. Um, we, you know, we had to verify, is this a real ban? Is this a scare campaign? If it's a scare campaign, should we be reporting on it? So you're sort of dealing with all those uh, different nuances. Um, and I think the challenge now, a lot of the reporting uh, on China is now it's all coming from, from outside of China. I mean, I think people like Bill Bertels and myself, we still uh, have have people in China that, that we can talk to. But, um, I mean, I think the risk is it can get a bit one-sided as well. You're getting all, all your information uh, from, from this side of the fence. Um, and, and, you know, being on the ground in China is so important just, just to work out what the nuances are, um, to talk to the distributors on the ground. What are they really thinking? What are the traders thinking? Um, are these bans actually real? Are they in place? And, you know, we had the same problem last year when there was this sort of unofficial coal ban. Uh, we didn't know how, how real it was or not. Um, and, you know, there, there's a whole lot of other issues uh, around covering the, covering the dispute. I mean, I think we've seen a few different editorials in Chinese state media this week sort of prompting uh, Australia to engage with China. So, again, you're sort of reading the tea leaves. Is this... Is this an olive branch by China, or, or would sort of China like us to uh, to be seen to be trying to in, to engage? Because then it would sort of demonstrate its, its sort of coercion was working. So, so you've got to work through all those those nuances. It's a it's a pretty tricky story to cover. So you've kind of you and Bill Bertels have been a bit of collateral damage from this. Uh, or you know, uh, from from the the political uh, situation between Australia and China. So from where you sit and your experiences uh, reporting these issues in 2020, uh, you heard from Diane and Richard about their views on uh, the key issues. For you, uh, mm. what's your perspective on uh, the state of relations at the moment and the key drivers uh, that are informing the relationship? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I sort of agree with um, with everything they said. I mean, I think we're in a situation uh, at the moment where, where, you know, there seems to be no way out of this. It, it seems like we, we're trying to sort of stare down our biggest customer, our biggest trading partner, um, and, and it's hard to see where this is going to end. I mean, I was talking to some uh, people in, in business this morning. I think behind the scenes there, there's a lot of lobbying going on with the Morrison government. I mean, I think there's sort of suggestions that, look, when we get a new trade minister, we don't, I don't think we know who that's going to be yet. You know, maybe he or she should, should go to, to Beijing, take a business delegation. I mean, some people in business are saying we should send the governor general up there. So, you know, any, any means necessary to sort of get these, um, you know, people-to-people -people links uh, back up and running. But, of course, that's very difficult, um, you know, the... Scott Morrison and his ministers are saying, you know, no one in China will, will pick up the phone. Um, and it, it sort of feels like the Morrison government's sort of um, position at the moment on China is, is um, you know, we're not going to back down. I mean, I think um, Australia's ambassador to China, 
told that to a business delegation in Shanghai last week. And I think the message is, well, maybe we're just going to have to diversify. Um, that's obviously not, not an ideal outcome. So it's sort of really hard to, to see where this is going. I mean, China obviously has decided um, to make an example of us, perhaps, you know, perhaps to the rest of the world. This, this is sort of what happens if you, um, you, you know, um, criticise China uh, uh, too much. So, yeah, look, I, I can't see much of a way out of this at the moment. Yeah, it's a really important question uh, that we will come back to. How do we go about diffusing these tensions or rolling back some of the, the rhetoric uh, and some of the, the sort of the, the issues around trade? Uh, but before I uh, turn to Gerald, just a reminder, uh, you can pop your questions in the Q&A function. Uh, and we'll get to those shortly. Uh, but Gerald, uh, the deteriorating state of Australia-China relations also has uh, serious implications for researchers and for universities. Uh, so do, would you mind unpacking some of the implications uh, and what does it mean for uh, Australia's cultural literacy when it comes to understanding China, which is, I think, vital um, for our society. Yeah, so just on that topic of cultural literacy, I what I'd like to say is that I think that in the context of these deteriorating relations that we currently have, trying to build that cultural literacy is really important. And um, we face a lot of challenges in that regard in Australia. And the the, the biggest challenge is, is not... Uh, foreign influence or foreign interference into our universities. Um, I don't deny at all that that happened. So I'll just give some examples from my own career um, and my own research. So my research is on um, Tibet. It's on language politics in Tibet. It's based on a long engagement with the region, including eight years living in Qinghai province in China. Um, it's uh, not possible to write about Tibetan language politics in a way that the Chinese government really appreciates if you're doing your research properly. And so I've faced interference with my research. So uh, last year when I applied for a visa, that was not granted as far as I can tell. It's a, it's a ban or a blacklist or a temporary halt. Um, uh, the research project that I'm currently working on, that's been interfered with. We had people calling uh, asking us not to proceed with it, claiming to be from the Chinese embassy. Uh, I was involved with a journal special publication that fell apart due to controversies around uh, censorship and self-censorship. Um, I organized a series of publications uh, on language maintenance and language revitalization that was translated into Chinese and we were trying to get it published with partners at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and, and couldn't get it published anywhere because it was deemed too politically sensitive, despite the fact that it was not even talking about Chinese language politics. Right, so this kind of political interference into research really does happen and it is, it is problematic both on a personal level for me and more broadly as a discipline. Um, but this really isn't the major challenge that we have in terms of building cultural literacy about China to help us deal with this situation. So I would say, that the far greater problem has been the gradual erosion of the university system and its creeping privatization um, over the last 30 years or so, which has really 
uh, the, the profit motive has really made it difficult for us to develop expertise in the areas where we need it. So I can talk about that a little bit in relation to language. Um, now, in Australia, we tend to adopt a policy around language, which I like to call anecdotally the Bernard Landman policy. Bernard Landman was the Japanese teacher at my high school. He was also the woodwork and metalwork teacher. Um, he was the Japanese teacher because the, the school wanted to say that we offered Japanese. No one ever took it. Uh, but he was there so that the, the school could say that we had it. Um, he was primarily the woodwork and shop teacher. He knew Japanese because he'd spent time there as a young man and learnt the language. And this is really indicative of the way that we generate expertise in Australia around languages, which is that we just generally look around for expertise, which is already present. We don't really train people. Uh, we just take whatever we can get. We import what we need. And, uh, and we don't often even use that in a genuine way. So in relation to the area where I work uh, in, in Tibet and Tibetan studies, um, about two years ago, I did a small survey of Tibetan studies in Australia that was um, published in the uh, International Institute for Asian Studies newsletter. And uh, I wrote about Tibetan languages expertise in Australia. And uh, of the about 10 or so people in Australia that uh, use some sort of Tibetan language competence in their studies, um, all of them had acquired it somewhere else um, and not necessarily as a part of their formal studies, right? So we have those people now who are able to inform public debate, who are able to draw on Tibetan language sources, but the language expertise that they have was not, uh, was not gained in Australia or as a result of any form of uh, policy or any uh, of our university practices. Um, and, and there's sort of been this continual failure to build this literacy in, in Australia. Uh, there's continual debate. The debate doesn't really go anywhere. It's pretty much a revolving door of self-defeating policy initiatives and critiques that don't build up anything. You, you can see this very much in relation to the way that we debate Chinese language competency in Australia. Uh, we think, well, do we need to train people in Chinese language to understand China? Um, this ignores the fact that China is a country with over 200 languages. We probably need a few people speaking all of those languages, but we don't even honestly do a very good job of, of teaching Putonghua. Um, we don't do a very good job of teaching Mandarin. There's this idea that, well, actually lots of Chinese people speak English because they have to learn it from the beginning of uh, primary school. So uh, we'll just exploit that readily available resource and, uh, see whatever comes of it. Um, but the problem is not only this lack of training uh, and lack of strategy around languages and cultural literacy, it's much deeper around this issue of privatization of the universities. Uh, we know that this has driven universities into a number of private partnerships in different countries, including China, which increases the exposure of those universities to foreign interference. We know that this has driven universities into greater reliance on international students. Um, this has not only made them financially vulnerable during the COVID pandemic in a way that universities in European countries like Sweden um, have not been made vulnerable, uh, but it has also again created a problem where we have 
a, a new window for foreign interference. Chinese students come in mass to Australia, our underfunded universities don't really provide them with very good services. There is a really deep and pervasive racism against international students across the board in Australia. There's fantastic research done by Senda Dovchin um, about this problem when she interviewed people about linguistic racism and found that it was just uh, pervasive in Australia. And, and, and having these vulnerable, harmed students at the universities in Australia, I, I think, does um, not reflect very well on the country. Well, getting back to the issue of racism, I, I guess one of the, the concerns about um, the narratives or the, the tenor of the discussion in Australia about relations with China uh, mm. is this issue about whether some of the... the it's, it's how we talk about China, actually. When I talk about China, I'm talking about the People's Republic of China or I might even just be talking about the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but these particularly anti-China narratives about whether these are racist or xenophobic leading to a much bigger question about how a, a multicultural country like Australia balances uh, the need to be anti-discriminatory and anti-racist while at the same time uh, you know, being able to discuss issues around uh, foreign interference or security challenges that are presented by uh, a rising power in the region. Yeah, so the, I guess the main point that I would, would want people to take away from this is that being anti-racist and offering a informed critique of what's happening in China, for example, in relation to Tibetans and Uyghurs is the same thing, right? But the tenor of the debate now is such that uh, there, there seems to be this false choice between being either anti-racist or anti-CCP, let's say, right? Um, and, and in fact, they should be the same thing. There have been a number of persistent failures in the way that this has been handled by the academic community uh, in the past years that have gotten us into the bind that we're in now. So I want to wind back a little bit, go back to 2018, uh, when there was debate raging about Clive Hamilton's uh, book, Silent Invasion. Now, I don't want to talk necessarily about that book. If people want to ask questions, that's fine. Um, but what I what I do want to draw uh, attention to is uh, an exchange that happened in sort of popular op-ed forums. Um, so we saw that the Australian, the then Australian Race Discrimination Commissioner uh, Tim Soupomasan, he wrote an op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald, I believe it was, where he was basically saying that you know there was problematic aspects aspects to the book. It was fanning the flames of of racism, it was employing yellow peril narratives. It was a fairly uh, measured critique. It did not uh, imply that the book was racist. It said that it fed into a racist context, right? We then had a response to that piece, which was published by Rory Medcalf at the Australian National University. This was published in the Lowy Interpreter. Um, and in that piece, he basically pushed back against um, Tim Sopomasan's critique of the book, right? And what I want to draw attention to in that is the fact that Rory Medcalf is not an expert on race and racism, 
right? He's a security expert. He's extremely knowledgeable in the things that he knows about, but he doesn't have expertise in race and racism. And he deliberately went out of his way to critique someone with expertise on racism for what they'd said about this book. And what we see in this is this kind of, it's really a kind of audacity to just overlook the expertise that people have around race and racism and the informed commentary that they give around this issue. And this kind of audacity, uh, this willingness to speak with impunity, with a, a lack of expertise, had just continued after that incident for the last two years. And that got us up to where we were at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. What we saw immediately when the pandemic broke in China and news started coming into Australia, there was a, a spate of racist incidents all around the world that was reported in the media. A lot of the China commentary then responded by saying, this isn't racism or this is racism, but it's not the real issue. We don't need to talk about it. And so I was writing about this issue back in February. Uh, from February onwards, it just continued to get worse and worse and worse, right? So we've seen, for example, a recent survey of 3,000 Asian Australians at Australian National University said that 84.5% uh, of them um, had experienced discrimination this year. Um, we have uh, the Asian Australian Alliance published a report in July. They said 60, uh, they were asking people to submit incidents of uh, racist discrimination that they'd experienced. 65% of the people who responded were female, 40% of them had met racism on the street, 22% in the supermarket, um, and the most common type of discrimination that they were exposed to was slurs and name calling. So it's just really opportunistic, targeted race attacks at vulnerable people. As a community, China scholars need to engage with this issue better and in a more informed way. So I started off by critiquing the general lack of cultural literacy about China and Australia. And so I'll end now just by saying that amongst the China scholars and the China watchers more generally, we have a really profound uh, lack of uh, racial literacy that needs to be addressed before we can really start even to begin having an informed conversation. Well, I think um, one of the important points to, to sort of take away from that is how what's being said in, in the security sort of domain or at a what's going on at a geopolitical level can actually feed down into the everyday experiences of people. And we need to remember that and be respectful of that. Uh, but I am delighted to see our Q&A box is filling up with questions. Uh, so I might send the first one uh, over to you, Richard. Uh, it is a question about Xinjiang, which is uh, a topic that has received considerable attention, not just in Australia, but globally, and one of the ones that uh, you mentioned in uh, the list of issues. So uh, this, this audience member asks, in relation to civil liberties in Xinjiang, there appear to be different messages China has presented a view that the Uyghurs enjoy the same freedoms as the Han and able to use their own language. However, we here in Australia are presented with a dismal picture of a persecuted population. What is the possible true 
picture. Uh, do you agree that there are different narratives on Xinjiang and what's your view uh, on this issue and, and why, is it, uh, why is it an issue that has affected Australia-China relations? Um, thanks. <clears throat> I should say, given Gerald's comments, I'm not an expert in Xinjiang, so I don't know whether you need to be an expert to answer this question. Um, and, uh, well, look, there's no doubt there's different narratives. The Chinese government has its narrative, and there's obviously a starkly different one, and I would say more accurate one outside of China. It's also important to remember the Chinese narrative on the re-education camps in Xinjiang and related issues has changed over time. Uh, when the reports first came out about the re-education camps, um, uh, they denied they existed, then they acknowledged there were some, then they acknowledged them in uh, greater numbers, and then started a more full-throated defence uh, of them as a sort of corrective uh, against um, real and uh, potential incipient uh, terrorism. Um, and now I think they, they, the line now is that they are in fact successful because there have, there have been fewer terrorist acts um, in, in recent years. Uh, I think we all know from um, various documents leaked about this to the New York Times and also a number of other scholars uh, um, in uh, uh, Europe and the United States and also um, uh, uh, other investigations. There's obviously been a big debate within China uh, about this. Um, uh, uh, the way the minorities um, um, uh, uh, policy has become much more securitized. Um, Gerald, Gerald, with his expertise in Tibet, would be able to tell us about the uh, party secretary move from Tibet to Xinjiang, whether in fact there's a similar application of uh, policy or not. But certainly uh, within China itself, um, there's been really deep criticism of this policy, which obviously has been swept aside. I don't think there's any doubt there's overwhelming evidence that there are large-scale re-education camps uh, in China. I don't like to call them concentration camps because I don't think it's an analogous directly to the Holocaust and it's slightly, uh, um, uh, it's slightly misleading. But uh, I'm not, and I know that when people call it a genocide, genocide is also quite a technical term, so I'm not sure that I should use that. But there's no doubt there's mass um, human rights abuses uh, going on in Xinjiang. Um, and uh, that's obviously something that China doesn't want to uh, discuss or acknowledge. And in fact, it's rather, I think, characteristic of Xi Jinping, his recent speech about this issue. He said the Xinjiang policy, I think he said, quote, unquote, it was absolutely right. Um, and it's a hallmark of the Xi Jinping administration generally particularly when facing outside criticism, there's no uh, backing down at all. So to answer the question, yes, there are different narratives. And I think uh, one is pretty accurate. There may have been some exaggerated reports uh, and the other um, is a defence of what looks pretty indefensible. I might just stick with you, Richard, for the moment, uh, because another one of the key issues uh, that you raised uh, when you were speaking earlier was the South China Sea issue, uh, one that's very close to my heart. So I'm keen to, to get your views on this because one of, uh, one of the things that, that China says about this issue is that this is an issue between China and its neighbours and it's not one that a state like Australia should get involved with. I mean, and 
I think we see that in some of the, the, the narratives around the South China Sea that having a view that Australia shouldn't get involved has increasingly become a kind of controversial view. Uh, but what's your sense of the role that this um, dispute or set of disputes plays in the, the bilateral relationship? South China Sea is just one of a, uh, a number of issues. I mean, Beck, I know you're quite an expert on this and, and I think far more knowledgeable than I am. In general terms, if you're looking at it in general political terms, um, uh, China would like to negotiate. Well, China has been negotiating a code of conduct with ASEAN states. I think there was a deadline to reach an agreement on that at the end of this year. That's been delayed, obviously, for COVID. But I think in any case... Uh, many people in ASEAN thought it was simply a sort of a, 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 an attempt to, to play out the clock, as it were, um, <clears throat> uh, while China was establishing certain facts on the ground or on the sea, if you like. Uh, but China generally wants to negotiate one-on-one -on -one with uh, different claimant countries, uh, and there's a host of them, you know, Vietnam, the Philippines, I think even Brunei in terms of uh, economic exclusion zones, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia as well. Um, it's much easier for them to negotiate one-on-one -on -one or with ASEAN, particularly when within ASEAN you've got states like Cambodia and Laos, which are kind of very loyal uh, to China. The next question from the audience I'll direct to uh, Diane, and it is about the benefits of the chapter agreement. So I did say that we would uh, try to get back to, to trade, and the question is about what are the benefits that chapter actually brings uh, to Australia in light of some of the uh, recent uh, interruptions in sale across a range of different industries. So is our most favoured nation state status uh, at risk of losing value without any agreements uh, with the US and Canada in sight? Uh, so does this economic coercion from Beijing risk creating a coalition of countries uh, that seek to get together in order to unify against these practices. So what are your thoughts, Diane? Uh, there are some trade disputes. Um, I think uh, a very important part of it that hasn't been covered too much in Australia is really um, the background, how this trade with with, uh, with Australia has also brought these advantages to China and to many of the Chinese producers. So I think the spokesperson uh, for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs made that quite clear, and unfortunately it wasn't covered here uh, in, in Australia. And I saw about one or two pieces on the conversation <laughs> basically talking about it, that how Australia was actually... Um, among the first uh, group of countries to start uh, having its anti-dumping laws and regulations, and it was really and it has really been a prolific user of that. So uh, the record with the Minister of, uh, of Commerce with China is that Australia over the years has initiated over a hundred anti-dumping investigations to China. Uh, but put that, aside, put that aside, I think it's important, I mean, if we step back, I think it's important to, to recognise before we jump into, uh, to, to, to judge on anyone, is that globalisation does have winners and losers. And for a country as big as China, and I mean, when so many exports 
uh, come from Australia, uh, they're having a lot of losers in China as well. And I think this is really something to take into account as well. And as for Chafta, I think Chafta is really, uh, is, is, is really a good point about it. I mean, if you look at the negotiations of the long way uh, of negotiation to, towards Chafta and how Tony Abbott pushed really hard towards that and when the president visited and how they talked about it, I think it was really about when you look at Chafta, in fact, Australia was really the one who benefited quite a lot in terms of trade from China. And during negotiations that time, I think a very important um, a very important thing for, for, for the Chinese side to sort of you try to get is really this a more, not really more favorable, but really fair treatment of Chinese enterprises investing in Australia. And that's, that's why Tony Abbott at that time made a speech and saying about that when countries trust each other, then they would invest in each other. And, and also there was this, uh, this one thing that didn't get sorted out uh, before Tony Abbott went away, which was uh, really asked by the Chinese side during chapter negotiations, the market economy status. So we have seen how that turned out yet. So for that, I would say Chafta is not really, I mean, a lot of the current debate on trade with China in Australia, as I can see, is really, um, quite one-sided. I think we, we need to take a look at the bigger picture in both countries. I might uh, turn to, to you, Mike, uh, have a, a couple of questions here, also focusing on economic dimensions of the relationship. Uh, the first one I'm going to throw to you, uh, Michael mentioned that Australia diversifying wouldn't be ideal. Can you explain why it wouldn't be ideal. And the second one that I'm going to give to you is from our good friend at La Trobe Asia, Rowan Kellick. Uh, he says, uh, we're having this discussion within Australia. Is there any space for similar discussion within China? Are Chinese businesses free or willing to lobby Beijing to return to a more predictable commercial relationship? Uh, the dramatic kiboshing of the ANT float last week seems to have underlined the ever more accentuated prioritising of political over economic or other priorities and over business elites within China, thus underlining also the extent of the challenge in restoring the Australia-PRC relationship. Uh, so over to you, Mike. Where, where do I start? Yeah, the diversification... Um, I mean, I think it's just really a, a matter of sheer numbers. I mean, China's the biggest consumer market in the world. It's going to remain one of the biggest markets in, in the world for us. I mean, I was, I was speaking to someone in the beef industry this afternoon, and, I mean, he was sort of saying, look, if we, if we ditch China tomorrow and, and relied on another country sort of like India, it would take 15 years to, to get up to those sort of same levels of, of volume. Uh, and they're also concerned that that even if you could export more goods to, to other countries in terms of volume, you still might not even get the value. Uh, China still might pay more for our goods. So, look, I think there's a diversification debate underway. I mean, I think a lot of uh, companies, particularly in the ag sector, are sort of certainly looking at this. They, they feel like the political risk with China uh, has just become too great. But the reality is um, they, they still need China. Our economy is still going to need China for 
for many years and, and, and decades to come. I mean, if China stops buying our iron ore tomorrow, which they won't, I mean, our, our economy is sort of in deep trouble. So I'm not saying it's, a, it's a, something we shouldn't look at. And we're obviously incredibly reliant on China and the university sector and, and tourism and, and elsewhere. But um, it's just going to remain such an important uh, customer. It's not just something you can do with, with a flick of a switch. Oh, but yeah, on the, the question on the sort of the, the private sector and whether they can make their voices heard and all this, yeah, that, that's a tricky one. Um, uh, I mean, in, in China, as we all know, if you're a, a, a private entrepreneur and you stick your neck out and start complaining about something the Chinese government's doing, it, it, it's not going to go down very well. Um, we, we've, we've, there's a bit of a debate at the moment about sort of more state, you know, there's sort of indications um, about more state control uh, over the private sector, you know, un under the under sort of the next five-year plan. We, we saw, you know, the pretty shocking decision last week to postpone uh, the Ant Group IPO just, just several days before it was due, due to list. So I'm not sure whether the private sector feels like uh, it can sort of throw its weight around too much. I mean, you know, there's obviously... Um, there's obviously distributors in China and other companies doing business with Australia who, who are concerned about this. I mean, I heard about some conversations at sort of various banquets at uh, CIIE last week where, where some Chinese investors and, um, and, and importers who have sort of quite good relationships with, with a lot of the Australian uh, exporters sort of saying to them over dinner, like, oh, my God, we, you know, um, we, we're very concerned with it. We've invested heavily in Australia and, and um, now it looks like that, that could be in jeopardy. But uh, I don't know whether they have much um, sway to sort of question what's going on at the moment. And, and the other problem with all this is, as we know, um, with this so-called economic coercion going on, it's, it's not really official. So there's nothing you can technically complain about. I mean, besides the the anti-dumping investigations into, into wine and, and barley, um, you know, the, the various bans or the rumoured bans that, that we saw last week. I mean, there's no, there, there's nothing on a piece of paper. There's no on-the-record discussion. So it's sort of very hard to uh, raise concerns with the Chinese government to, uh, about these actions when, um, you know, th there's no proof out there that, that it's actually happening. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Gerald, I might pass this question on to you. Uh, and it's one about uh, the state of Australian universities and a really important question, I think, about why they have become so reliant uh, upon uh, international students for revenue uh, and how they are preparing to cope with a potential drop-off in Chinese students if tensions continue. And I would probably, uh, I would argue that not just if tensions continue, but as China's domestic capabilities or, or capacity in tertiary education improve over time. Yeah, thanks for that question. I, I guess how I'd like to answer that is just with a short comparison with um, the situation in Sweden. So I mentioned that briefly in my uh, opening comments. Um, and so I was previously a, a research fellow at Uppsala University in Sweden. I still have contact with uh, some of my colleagues there. And so I've been in touch with them talking about the situation in Australia and the 
the massive job losses, so 12,500 job losses across universities in Australia, um, not including casuals and not including full-time uh, researchers such as myself, uh, projected forward to have hundreds of job losses in the coming year. And I was telling this to my colleagues in Sweden and talking uh, about these issues and, and the situation just has not happened there, right? The universities are not struggling. They do not have a financial shortfall and they don't have that because they were, um, they never privatized their universities to the extent that we did. So they were not reliant on uh, income from students. So when I was in Sweden, which was five years ago now, um, the conversation that they were having about privatization was very different. So previously, Sweden had, Sweden has free university education. Um, for citizens, but it had until I think about 2012, free education for anyone from anywhere. So people could come from anywhere in the world and receive a university education in Sweden uh, for nothing. And that policy had been rolled back not long before I got there and that was still controversial. So they had introduced a fee structure for international students, um, but it never became a funding model for the universities, right? So the university models here, what we tend to do is we um, charge large fees for the students um, because the, the government doesn't fund universities to the extent that it did in the past. We charge large fees and then the money that we get from that is spread out amongst the university and it's a crucial uh, revenue stream for all universities in Australia. And when that, when that dried up, um, universities were all exposed. They were exposed to different extents, however, based on um, whether they had a, a war chest, like um, some of the sandstone universities uh, do, and, and also to the extent that they had a, a larger uh, international student market. Um, and, and so that exposure to this kind of financial risk um, is really just due to cuts to university budgets from, from the government, which started when I was an undergraduate student back in the 90s, right? When I was an undergraduate student back in the 90s, there was beginning to be protests against funding cuts. Uh, when I was an undergraduate student, I studied in the Department of Entomology at the University of Queensland, which is a department which no longer exists because there's been this continuous consolidation of uh, areas of expertise into bigger pots, right? Um, and, and that's also affected the way that we've been able to produce expertise and cultural literacy in Australia. So I might uh, ask a, a question that I will get all panellists to respond to. Uh, it is about, it's something that Richard mentioned earlier. It's about the choice that Australia made to ask for a transparent investigation into uh, the origins of COVID. Uh, so it's, it's quite a long question, but I think the, the, the gist of the question is um, whether or not this was uh, an appropriate course of action for Australia, but also what does it say about China's reaction? Uh, the way that China responded to Australia in light of this request, is this likely to actually increase its own diplomatic isolation 
or um, hasten the strengthening of this sort of coalition of the so-called like-minded states or liberal democracies against uh, China's trade and political practices. So uh, given, Richard, that, that you did briefly mention it early in your, in your earlier comments, I might start with you um, before um, handing it off to the, the rest of the panel. I mean, there's no doubt there should be an open inquiry into it. Um, uh, and it, it, can you imagine if China had done that in, in an open way? Uh, you know, when many states make mistakes and they have full and open inquiries, it's a, uh, an important, it's both important for revealing the facts, it's important as an admission of um, uh, error, wrongdoing, whatever is the case, uh, it's accountability and the like. And I think it would have ex reflected extremely well on China. So I'm not saying there shouldn't be uh, an inquiry into it. I'm just talking about the diplomacy of it. If you look at that, how Australia handles a numerous difficult issues with China, say on Hong Kong, on Xinjiang, um, on the South China Sea, we, might, we make statements in concert with a whole bunch of allies and partners. And that's not just <clears throat> safety in numbers, that's sort of strength in numbers, security in numbers. Uh, in this case, um, we seem to go, there seem to be, you know, when, 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 a, when a government, the government has what they think is a great sort of diplomatic or political triumph, you'll read about it in the papers later, what the newspaper journalists would call a TikTok, you know, a blow-by-blow -blow account of how we got this decision, what was said in the room, all that sort of thing. You have seen zero about this. And that's, I wonder, it's because I think they made a mistake, as far as I can see. It was simply the Foreign Minister Maurice Payne talking to Scott Morrison and then going ahead on a program, the insiders on Sunday morning and announcing it and really not having done the diplomatic spade work beforehand. So it's no doubt it's the right thing to do, but there's many things in life that are the right thing to do that you don't do. Um, uh, and in the end, we got something up through the, uh, a body attached to the World Health Organization. It was much less than what we asked for, which is fair enough. In other words, it's a compromise. Um, but uh, that was done with the EU. And I, I remember the ambassador of the EU saying, you know, Australia was the bad cop and we were the good cop. And I thought to myself, well, we've got a lot of problems with China at the moment. Um, you're the biggest trading bloc in the world. Why don't you be the bad cop and we'll be the good cop on this one? Uh, I, I just think it was it was handled poorly diplomatically uh, and we could have done the right thing in a different way and not um, had such a big cost uh, to our economy. I'm not saying, by the way, that our relations with China would be great whatever happened. I just think this was handled poorly. Uh, Diane, I might ask for, for your view and particularly relating to the, the second part of the, of the question about uh, China's response uh, to uh, Australia's call, which is really interesting, I think, uh, how uh, it, it dealt with Australia's unilateral call. Thank you, Meg. Um, I think what at least um, one thing that is um, that can be uh, validated or proved is what Richard said just now about how this whole thing has been handled. Is uh, said. Uh, I think um, the deputy head of mission from China to Australia, Mr. Washington, when he made that speech at the press club, I think he was making pretty much the same point about how sort of communication should have been done uh, beforehand. And this, of course, will bring us back to a, a, a 
debate that we started about two years ago about messaging, about uh, messaging of Australia's uh, policy and also decisions to the Chinese side. And I think this is this is, and I think this is really important. But from what I can see, uh, I think the government thinks that uh, this is, of course, this is a huge uh, public health pandemic, and this is terrible. And I think everyone, including China, and I would say particularly China, was caught off guard and nearly panicked a little bit <laughs> at the beginning. And I, I think we need to we need to admit that there's a learning curve for everyone. And I would say that that, lear that learning curve came especially hard on China when it first hit in Wuhan in that wet market. And in fact, I just want to say that it's not a wet market. I mean, the, the official name of it is really a seafood market. That that's really one of the things that has been that has been mis misinterpreted a lot. So um, that's it's definitely. Um, something very a very important about about it's it's really that how this how this course should be communicated and also uh, how it should be done and how it should be communicated with the chinese preferably uh beforehand and i think there's also another part of it is that because the Chinese side, they read Australian media too, and they would see, I mean, this is this is definitely something that they have realized and very very conscious of uh, at, at this moment. And it's, it's really about that a lot of the people uh, were writing about or commenting about this, they didn't shun from saying that this is really uh, a cause for us to get together to, you know, invest to sort of go to China and to investigate these mishandling. I think that was that that part was was the thing that didn't start too well. Uh, Mark, I might get your views here. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I agree with Richard. I mean, this was handled very clumsily. I mean, this is a major foreign policy statement that that's going to affect your relationship. Uh, with, with your biggest trading partner. And it just kind of felt like it was done on the fly or without much consultation. I mean, it was sort of very strange the way, you know, it was done by Maurice Payne on, on Insiders on a, on a Sunday morning. So the whole thing, you know, it, it just didn't seem like it, it, it was, hand, whether it was right or wrong, it, it just was sort of handled very clumsily. And look, I mean, I was still living in China back in April when this happened. And if you're in China, you, you knew that this was the most sensitive political issue around. I mean, it became more of a sensitive issue than Tiananmen Square or, or anything else. And I mean, I had a, a few uncomfortable conversations with friends when the topic came up. And if you suggested it, it did come from Wuhan, people would get very offended and and um, you know, to talk about well, is there evidence or or isn't there? And and it was just such an, a big political issue. So to sort of come out and and to make this statement without perhaps thinking through what the consequences are, um, it didn't seem to be that well thought out. But but like Richard, obviously I agree. You know, there there needs to be investigation. But uh, it just felt like there was another way to do it. And and it sort of feels like it became the. A bit of a tipping point. I mean, China have had a lot of grievances with us, you know, over Huawei and foreign interference and and many things. But it sort of felt like this this became the last straw. Um, you did mention, you know, China's reaction. Well, you know, you could argue China's 
being being oversensitive, but um, I mean, I guess you know you, you have the entire world, um, you know, having a go at you over over this sort of global pandemic, and and um, and it's all about saving saving face, and it's it's a very complicated and and uh, sensitive issue. So, um, you know, I think it's really done a lot of damage to, uh, well, certainly to our relationship with China. Uh, Gerald, did you have any insights you wanted to share on this issue? Uh, yeah, Beck, look, I don't have any insights, but I'd like to share the insight of, of that, that I lack the expertise to really speak to this issue. And I think that when we engage in these kinds of conversations that often we just need to be honest about the things that we have expertise in and that we, and that we don't be willing to sort of talk with each other. Um, but I will use that to springboard to just one clarification and one other broader point, which is that, so one of the questions um, was directed to me about the about being an expert. And I want to contrast that with the idea of expertise, which was what I wanted to talk about, and I may have misspoke. So I would say being an expert in something means that that's your main area of study. That's what you've done your research in. That's what you've devoted your life to, right? You're an expert in that. Having expertise in the topic, I think, just means that you've given it serious, rigorous consideration, that you've engaged in, in feedback uh, processes with other people who are experts in that, right? So um, I'm not an expert, for example, in, in anti-racist literature or practice. I'm not a, an expert in critical race theory. Those are things that I've acquired expertise in because it's relevant to what I study, right? And that's that's what I'm suggesting that uh, we need more of amongst the people who talk about and study China, a willingness to acquire different kinds of expertise, right? Um, but the situation that we have now, this kind of crisis in the universities, the crisis of cultural literacy about China is unfortunately undermining that. So we tend to sort of, um, there, there tends to be a desire for people who can speak about China to speak about anything about China, right? And, and that's simply not the case. We need to be a little bit more nuanced and, uh, and, and targeted in the way that we treat China expertise. I think that that's really, really important. Uh we have a question from Kate Ritchie. Hi, Kate. Uh, this is one that is uh, very much one that I would like to ask all of our panel, and it is about the role of diplomacy and DFAT in dealing with uh, bilateral relations. Uh, it seems that, uh, and this is uh, Kate's asking this question, with diplomacy taking second place to security agencies in Australia, is it fair to say uh, that the foreign minister may not have considered the repercussions before she made the claim on insiders about the independent inquiry uh, and that olive branches recently extended may have actually fallen on deaf ears because of a lack of cultural literacy? I'd also like to expand a, a little bit on that question uh, one of the, the sort of the, the issues that I have is if, when we talk about diversification, 
that really requires investing in our diplomatic apparatuses, not just in our security. It requires um, governments really sort of investing resources into that. Uh, so I might uh, again start with you, Richard, and, and go around <laughs> go around the room uh, to talk about this, this issue of uh, the role of diplomacy in helping Australia manage its relationship with China. <laughs> Um, yes, interesting question. I resist this idea that the security agencies are driving the, re the relationship and I guess driving the relationship downhill. I think it's the politicians who are in charge. Now, maybe they've been informed by um, uh, security briefings and the like, but it's a bit sort of easy to say the deep state's taken over. It's more complicated than that. And I think the politicians think that they are being... Uh, tough on China, um, which may be the right thing to do, is in fact got a lot of public support. So it's not just about, um, you know, secret squirrel types um, slipping a note under somebody's nose and sort of running the agenda. Uh, DFAT, has DFAT been marginalised? I don't think Maurice Payne is a particularly powerful foreign minister. I think DFAT was, might have been sort of marginalised a little bit in parts of the debate, which is a pity. But I think in many people in DFAT, I think, had a very hard-headed view about China some years ago, but I think they found that the pendulum swung wildly all the way past them and suddenly their hard-headed view wasn't tough enough. And, um, but I think they are pretty involved now. I don't know. I don't, you know, know day to day, but I think they're in, I don't think you'd say they're out of the um, policymaking uh, circle now. They might have been on the COVID-19 inquiry. Of course, we've never found out about that. Um, on the diversification issue, that is, you know, we certainly need to, you know, you get a bigger bang from your buck with your expanding your diplomatic network uh, compared to defence. There's no doubt that the budget has been cut um, far too far. But you're not going to get trade diversification from uh, putting more diplomats on the ground. Frankly, that's about Australian businesses, Australian individual business people uh, frankly, uprooting themselves from their, let's say, comfortable lives or much more simple lives in uh, Australia and going off and um, uh, as multinationals from, you know, individuals from executives from, you know, Japan, South Korea, the US, Europe, and going and living in these countries and building the markets. That's how you get um, uh, a greater trade diversification. I take Michael's point, you know, the you can't just flick a switch and uh, many, many cases the markets aren't there. But it's a hard slog on the ground um, uh, by individual business people, maybe helped by the government. Uh, it's not about uh, diplomats or trade officials. Yes, business buying, I think, is crucial to trade diversification. Uh, Diane, did you have uh, a comment to make on this issue? Well, I, I happen to agree with Kate about this um, diplomacy taking second place to security agencies in Australia. In fact, we started that kind of uh, discussion with both Chinese and Australian colleagues back in China over two years ago. And I raised this question several times, including once to a former director of ONA about the situation, whether it was a blip or it would be something more lasting. 
So I think, I mean, this is this is definitely, I mean, at least according to our observation, something that's going on. And I would just like to uh, add one more piece of evidence, which is the uh, proposed uh, foreign investment legislation. I mean, if you look at it, you will see the securities is basically everywhere. And we recently have the Treasury thanking the security for giving advice in foreign investment review proposals. And I think this, the, all these are really very interesting developments uh, on, on the ground. And about the part of the olive branch and um, I was talking about this a little bit, um, I mean, when I was answering the first question, I would definitely, I mean, as a Chinese scholar, I would like to uh, confirm that I think those are definitely um, sort of all legal branches who are trying to clarify the situation, at least uh, show this willingness. Uh, so um, I think uh, it may even start with Ambassador Chen Jingye's interview with Australian Financial Review, which unfortunately was mostly, uh, I mean, the only thing that got to the headline was really that threat. <laughs> and this really forced the Chinese embassy to, to, sort of, uh, to sort of publish the whole script on their website to tell everyone that this is what we have said. <laughs> And the next one, of course, is uh, Mr. Wang Shining's speech at the um, at the press club, and then we have Fu Ying's interview uh, with Australian media. I think all those are definitely um, at least efforts to try to communicate what the Chinese side is is, is thinking and how uh, how we are trying to do this. Unfortunately, um, they haven't let us know where. And I would definitely agree with with what Gerald just said now about this about this literacy. And it's not just about the language, it's not just about the culture, but also society. Because we always remember that in Australia, when we are talking about Chinese, it's always a racial concept. It's not just a mainland Chinese or uh, as what we say, PRC Chinese. So I think that's really something, something quite complicated here. And please don't forget that many of the DFAT employees they really have their Chinese training in Taiwan instead of the mainland China. I think somehow that has contributed to their understanding. I mean, I would say the society and governance of a country is, is, is really crucial for understanding. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, Mark, I might uh, turn to you now. I mean, we've had actually two different views here about whether security agencies are driving mm. uh, relations. What's your view? Yeah, and I, I want to answer that question by responding to what sort of Diane said. And because we're getting these really conflicting messages from, from China, like my interview with, with Madam Fu Ying, I mean, she was sort of quite conciliatory. Uh, we had an advisor to the Commerce Ministry approach our paper last week uh, with some suggestions on how the Morrison governments could sort of mend ties with China. So you're sort of getting overtures like that coming out. But then, but then on the other hand, you're getting sort of these bans put in place. We've, we've had some very, very aggressive editorials in the in the China Daily and the, and the Chinese media over the last two weeks. So look, it's it's really conflicting. And that sort of makes you wonder, well, who's, you know, who's driving the agenda in China? Is it, is it the foreign ministry, uh, where, you, where you've got sort of reasonably conciliatory speeches from, from the ambassador in Australia and, and from Fu Ying and, and their officials? But, but, you know, we can ask the same question that we're asking in Australia right now is, 
other, other security agencies in China perhaps driving driving the agenda there. I mean, I mean, I guess in China only one person really drives the agenda. But I mean, I think you know my my experience uh, and Bill and my experience sort of led us to believe that the, the Ministry of State Security was really in charge of. Uh, of what happened to us, that certainly wasn't wasn't the foreign ministry. Perhaps they didn't they didn't want that to happen. Uh, they they you know they probably want Australian journalists back in there. But um, so I think we just sort of have to ask the question both ways: um, whether whether the security agencies are driving the agenda in Australia, but but are they also uh, in China? Yeah, it's a really important mm. point to make. Uh, and Gerald, I think this is the last response we are going to be able to fit in. Uh, are you concerned about the securitization of, of China as an issue in Australia? Uh, what are your views uh, on this issue about the role of diplomacy? Um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm concerned about the securitization of the China issue um, in Australia for a number of reasons, because I think it does feed in uh, to the problem we have with anti-Asian racism in Australia, uh, which is also currently being bolstered by rising right-wing extremism, which has been identified by, by ASIO as a rising problem in the country. Um, but I guess talking about the role of DFAT, which was in the original question about the role of DFAT and bilateral relations, I just want to uh, end with talking about part of my personal experience, which was that I, I went to China and got my expertise about China as part of volunteers, uh, Australian Volunteers International initially, uh, which was not a direct DFAT program, uh, but was funded in part from DFAT. I was in China at the time that the Australian DFAT uh, bilateral aid program was phased out. I was there when the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development project was wrapped up. Um, I think that the cessation of all of those projects, the the direct experience that it gave Australian people of China, the connections that it made with uh, different communities around China, the expertise that it gave the general populace in Australia. I think all of those things were really important and, um, and, and the absence of that and the lack of that in our future is just going to continue to uh, drive this crisis of uh, a lack of literacy and you feed that into the increasing securitization and it doesn't look like a positive picture to me. And of course, uh, the, the issues of, of press freedom also feed into that uh, our understanding of China is compromised if uh, our reporters uh, can't report on what's going on on the ground. Uh, so I would like to uh, thank our panellists, Mike, uh, Richard, Gerald and Diane. I have really appreciated uh, you sharing your insights and your deep knowledge on this issue. Uh, I would also like to thank the audience for watching this Latrobe Asia webinar. Uh, the webinar has been recorded and you will be uh, emailed the appropriate links when they are ready. Our next Latrobe Asia event is a live podcast recording with Bonnie Glaser from the Centre for International uh, and Strategic Studies uh, from the US. And that is about 
Uh, how will the US president affect Asia? This is our last event in a series that we have done on US-Asia relations uh, around the US elections. Uh, this podcast will be recorded uh, and it will be recorded on the 17th of November at 10 a.m. Melbourne time. So I'm hoping that you might be able to join us for that. Uh, but thank you again to our guests Please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list uh, to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Thank you.